Well, let's turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. The church at Thyatira, and whatever we talked about in Pergamos, in its beginning stages, found full blossom in this church. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, is the longest of the seven letters. And yet it is written to the least of all the churches as far as size and significance. I'm reminded of something that Dr. Havner said as he talked about these letters to the seven churches. He said, I don't know what is wrong with all the churches that I have to preach in. I don't need to know. I don't want anybody to tell me what's wrong. I have learned that if the Word of God is preached in the Spirit, God will so apply it to the hearts of people that they will think that somebody told the preacher what was wrong. It is the Word of God applied by the Spirit that does the work, not the opinions of the preacher. I believe that every conceivable church problem is covered in these letters, and by them, churches can be examined, the trouble can be diagnosed, and the remedy can be prescribed. If you would keep your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, we will read those verses as we come to them in our study of this letter to the church at Thyatira. I want you to look at the correspondent, if you would, first of all, for he is identified in two places. He is identified in Revelation chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and also identified in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. Look at chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, if you would. Notice that he says, His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in the furnace. Now look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. He identifies himself as the Son of God, and he says, The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burning or burnished bronze, says this. It is interesting to note that Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God. For in this particular city, their patron god was Apollo, the sun god. And the idol that was built to Apollo was built with eyes like flaming fire and feet like burnished bronze. Jesus identifies himself making no mistake about who he is. And he says, the people in your community worship the sun god, but I want you to know that I'm the son of God. I'm the S-O-N, I'm not the S-U-N. I am the bright and morning star, as he will call himself later in this letter. And the eyes like flame of fire identifies the fact that Jesus' eyes are like penetrating fire. It burns through everything. Any of you that have ever seen a fire out of control, you know that nothing stops it. Nothing stands in its way. It penetrates and burns through everything that's in its way. Thus Jesus says, I can penetrate with my eyes any facade, any front that is put up. I can look and find the real meaning. God knows our heart. Man judges on the outside. God judges with the heart. With his flame of fire, he burns through all our facades. Then he says he has feet like burnished bronze. Bronze is always a symbol of judgment in Scripture. And Jesus says, with my fire, I not only purify, but I judge. Malachi identifies Jesus Christ as the refiner of God's people. The reason that Jesus identifies himself this way with this church is that he sees himself and understands his role with this particular church, as with all churches really, to be that of purifier and refiner. 
that he takes away everything from us that is not made in his image until we look and conform to the image of Christ. This is the correspondent. Now he's writing to a particular church. This church was a, a one traffic light uh, uh, town where this church was located. In fact, they probably didn't have a McDonald's. They were a manufacturing center and they were a market center. Uh, they probably had a few outlet malls on the side of the highway where people could stop in, but you couldn't find much else there besides an outlet mall. This town was so small, it was kind of like Tai Tai is to Tokyo. I mean, it wasn't much to it. You know, you kind of went through and you said, thank God, that's over, and you just kept going. Uh, if you've never been to Possum Neck, Mississippi, it'd be like Possum Neck, Mississippi to Atlanta. Or uh, Cut and Shoot, Texas. Have you ever been to Cut and Shoot, Texas? It's a real blessing. Uh, cut and shoot Texas to New York City. It just wasn't much of a town. It was 30 miles from Pergamos. And really, the people in Thyatira, now if you want to know what a help yourself image, is to know that you are stationed in a place to be a buffer for a major city for Pergamos. And in other words, the reason for Thyatira is that they would take a little time mowing them down and slaughtering them in a war to give Pergamos time to get ready for it. They were expendable. They were not significant people. These people were located in the middle of nowhere, and, and they're in the middle of that place, and even today there exists a city there, about 25,000 people. And I think Jesus wrote this letter to these people for a couple of reasons. One is, I think with Jesus, he's trying to say to all churches, there are no insignificant churches and there are no insignificant places. Regardless of the size of the church, we sometimes measure churches by their size. God measures them by their sort. We look at quantity, God looks at quality. And although we exalt the megachurch in our society and in our denomination, there's going to come a day when God's going to balance the books and tell which ones were His megachurches and which ones weren't. Because, folks, sometimes you can get a big church and not preach Jesus. I was reading Dr. John Bassanio's mail out this morning and I showed it to Kevin. He made a reference to a gentleman who pastors in California who was interviewed, the first pastor, the first Christian ever interviewed on Russian television and he had 15 minutes. And the interviewer said to him, with all of Russia watching, an atheist nation, the interviewer said to him, Sir, how do we know God? And Bassanio said, I grieved in my heart when the man said, when an idea comes to your mind. And for 15 minutes, this man, who claims to be a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, never one time mentioned the blood, never one time mentioned the deity of Jesus Christ, never one time mentioned the atonement, never one time mentioned the cross, never one time mentioned the resurrection. I think God must have been grieved regardless of how big his church is. Because we missed a chance to tell an atheistic world well, God wrote to this church to say, you may be small, but you're significant because I want you to know that you're significant. I think the other reason he wrote is because there's never a time when any church is immune from error and heresy. A false teacher can slip in anywhere. They're not picky about going into a large church. They, they, a false teacher can slip in at any point, at any place. This church was founded probably by Lydia. She was one who had had an association with the Apostle Paul, and the church was founded by Lydia, and this church is in the middle of a small town, probably a small church. And yet Jesus writes them, and he gives them a commendation. Look, if you would, he says, I know your deeds, 
Now notice what all he notices twice. He notices their deeds or their works. James says, faith without works is dead. He says, I know your deeds, your works, and your love, and your faith, and your service, and your perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. He says, I've been watching you. I know intimate knowledge. That's a word for intimate knowledge. He says, I know, I am very familiar with your situation. I've been watching you and your deeds and your love and your faith and your perseverance are growing. You folks have come a long way. You've grown in your understanding of the gospel. You've grown in your understanding of doctrine. You, you understand some, things of, some of the things of the Lord and, and I've watched you and you've grown in love. Now, he didn't say that about Ephesus. He said, you've lost love. He says about Thyatira, you're growing in love. And they have perseverance, and yet there is a problem within this church of which they need to repent. For you see, they loved everybody so much that they tolerated evil. And Jesus says, I know your deeds, and that your deeds were greater than at first. But then he follows that with verse 20. And he says a word of condemnation. He says, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation." unless they repent of her deeds, and I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. Again, he's going back to the reference to eyes of flames of fire. And I will give each one of you according to your deeds. Now, one thing about the Lord is he always nails down the problem. You'll never find in the Word of God Jesus Christ beating around the bush. Sometimes that's a little hard for us. Sometimes it seems a little harsh and a little cold, but Jesus always confronts a problem, and he always leads his people to confront problems. Jesus never tells us to deal with problems in general. It is amazing how many times that uh, you and I find ourselves talking to people who aren't here. Have you ever had a preacher scold you for not coming when it rains and you were here? It's, sure, it's a lot easier to talk to people who aren't here than the people who are here. You know, it's, it's like, the, like the guy who always gets up and preaches and says, I'm going to tell you, New United States Supreme Court. Like all those guys are sitting home saying, what time's that guy come on? We need to watch him. <clears throat> Jesus didn't do that. Jesus said, Jezebel is your problem. Now, this may or may not be the name of the woman who was causing problems in this church, but by naming her Jezebel, the Lord identifies her with a very infamous woman of the Old Testament found in the book of 1 Kings. Jezebel was married to Ahab, and she led Israel into idolatry. It is interesting that God always works that way. With Nathan, he did not come to David and say, David, you could be one of several men. He said, thou art the man. When he confronted David with his sin, he said, David, you're the sinner. You're the one that's committed the sin. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he said to the man who was living in sin, he said, there's the man, you deal with him. Paul didn't talk in general and said, now y'all just get out there and throw this out to the wind and if anybody gets convicted, deal with it. He said, here's a problem, here's a situation, you deal with it and cast them out of the church. God always deals specifically. He's referring to Jezebel. Jezebel had a problem with God. She didn't think that God should have a monopoly. 
And so she thought that there could be other gods just as equally important as God. And so right beside the altars of Jehovah, she had built altars to worship Baal. Baal was a hedonistic god. He was a sexual god, a god of fertility, a god of agriculture, and they worshiped him. And she corrupted God's people. She led God's people into immorality. And to show you what God thinks about Jezebel, there's only about two verses recorded about her death. She fell out of a window and dogs ate her. Now I'll tell you what, if some of the people who try to mislead the church would fall out of a few windows and dogs would eat them, it would probably wake up the church. Well, that's what happened to Jezebel. She didn't have a very kind ending. God cast her down, but it wasn't on a bed of sickness. It was down to the ground and she was eaten by dogs and Jesus comes and identifies this problem with this woman and he says she is misleading God's people and she must be dealt with. And you see, the problem with the church was they just wanted to love Jezebel. I mean, they, they probably realized that Jezebel wasn't all there. I mean, they, they could look in her eyes and tell that the elevator didn't go to the top floor. But, but you know, they, they still, they loved her so much that they tolerated her, and that's where the danger came. It'd be like going to a dentist, and the dentist say, you know, you've got 30 good teeth, so I'm not going to worry about this one that needs a root canal. After all, the good outnumbers the bad, so let's just leave that one alone because you've got so many good teeth that are commendable. No, you don't do that. You deal with the bad tooth. You deal with the things that are the problems. And he came to the point where in verse 24, he says that she was teaching the deep things of Satan. God never wastes words, nor does he compromise on his descriptions. God says through the Holy Spirit to John as he is writing these words that Jezebel was teaching the very deep things of Satan. Now, this was going on at the time that John was alive. G. Campbell Morgan says Jezebel thought she had a vision and what she had was a nightmare. You see, here was a woman who was disguised as Satan, as an angel of light, and she had a new revelation. She had a new teaching. She had a new prophecy, a new inspiration. And so she was teaching these things as the deep things of God, and yet they weren't the deep things of God. They were the deep things of Satan. It amazes me, absolutely amazes me, how many believers will not accept the simple truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but will chase every Jezebel that walks through this world with strange and perverted teachings? I mean, they'll go after it. Somehow, if it sounds strange and weird, they chase it. German theologian was asked one day, what's the greatest truth that you've ever known about God? A man had three or four PhDs. He said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You see, we got a lot of people trying to chase deep things, trying to make Scripture say what it doesn't say, trying to plug something in that won't fit, trying to fit a square peg in a round hole theologically, and they are teaching what they consider to be the deep things of God, but Jesus says they are the deep things of Satan. Now, she does two things. First of all, she rationalizes sin. She led God's people into immorality. She rationalizes sin. There is a mixture because of this heresy of truth and error. Now, you and I understand that heresy never comes about by just a blatant lie, a blatant disregard and denial of Scripture. Heresy always comes about by people who mix truth and error. They put a little bit, because I tell you, if you see a bottle and it says arsenic on it, you're not going to drink it. But a few drops of that in a salad will kill you. It is mixing together. It is the truth that holds the error together. 
And Jezebel was teaching truth mixed with error, and she was using just enough Christian language, she was using just enough Christian terminology that when she spoke, that people would say, oh my, well, she must understand the deep things of God. She must understand the deep things of God because she keeps using this scripture and she keeps quoting scripture, and most likely she was doing it out of context, and she was trying to interpret scripture in a way that it shouldn't be interpreted. Jezebel was teaching heresy, and she was rationalizing sin. She was saying, you can live like you want to live. You can do what you want to do. We are free to live and act however we want to. And she was leading God's people into immorality. There are a lot of people these days that are leading God's people into immorality. And I'll tell you, one of the problems that's happening in our culture, and it's very subtle, is that we are allowing a sinning pulpit. We are allowing a sinning pulpit. And ladies and gentlemen, when the man behind the pulpit is held under no more accountability and expected no more integrity than what we are seeing being held up today, then it makes sinners feel a lot more comfortable with their sin. Now, I will state this emphatically. I believe when a man falls into immorality, he loses his ministry as a minister. Now, he may teach a Sunday school class. He may have some other ministry, but I think that there is one chance and God gives us that and if we fall, we lose our ministry. We shouldn't have a right to come back and stand because I'm going to tell you when, you, when that person stands, there are men preaching on television right now and when they stand, they can never, 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 never again preach, thou shalt not commit adultery. They can never make a reference to sexual immorality again because everybody will look at their life and wonder, are they still doing that? So I think that we've got to realize that the teaching of Jezebel is having half-truth and rationalizing sin and coming to the point where we think, well, we ought to accept that because there is a little mixture of truth there. Kind of like this watch. I might just keep wearing this watch even though it's not running because it is right twice a day. Now, whether it's 20 minutes till 12 or... A.M. or P.M. It's right twice a day. Somebody sitting out there saying, oh God, he doesn't have his watch working. <laughs> what Jezebel was teaching was what we call today a new morality, which is nothing more than the same old immorality with a new coat on. Situation ethics is of the devil. And when we teach these things to be the things of God, what we're saying is God has changed. God has not changed. If it is new, it is not true. Now listen, if it's new, it's not true. I told the early service crowd that uh, my pastor in Atlanta uh, sent uh, the associate pastor and I, in fact, uh, he's preached here before, Randy Turner. He's, he's preached in this church before when Brother Billy was pastor. And... Uh, Dr. Price sent Randy and I to a meeting one day because he figured he would be a little too visible. So he sent the two goons on the staff uh, to go check out this guy who was a former Southern Baptist who was uh, thinking about bringing a crusade into the Atlanta area. He wanted to find out what was going on. So we went. It's about $25 a plate meal. First thing I wondered about was what little lady on Social Security sacrificed to pay for me to eat that. And then as I sat around, I looked around the room and all these bigwigs were there. I mean, you know, these you know, experts and theological giants and all these different realms of Christianity. 
And I turned around and looked at Randy, and I said, I wonder if they know who we are. <laughs> and I got real concerned as we began to listen, as this brother stated that God had shown four men that in the last days they were the new apostles to the church. In fact, if you'll listen to some of those men preach, they will tell you that they have the office of apostle. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says that to be an apostle, you had to see Jesus Christ physically resurrected. Now that tells me that nobody alive today, unless he's about 1,900 years old, has done that. And if he is, he'll gum the gospel to death. He won't preach it. <laughs> now, folks, there are no new apostles. When John died, the last apostle died. There are no new apostles. And there is no new truth. I got really concerned when they called these pastors up to cast the demons out of them. Now, I'm concerned, folks, when there's 250 pastors in that room and over half of them go up to get the demons cast out. I wondered what their crowds got. <laughs> now, what really kicked it off was when they cast out the ice cream demon. I wondered if it was chocolate or vanilla. <laughs> in fact, I kind of thought as much as I like ice cream, maybe God would want me to have that. You see how ridiculous things can get? I mean, a guy claims to be a new apostle. He can claim anything, and how are you going to argue with him? I'll tell you how you argue with him. You take him to the Word and make him prove it. Jezebel rationalized sin. And folks, when you say your revelation is above and beyond Scripture, when you say you've moved beyond the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you say you've moved beyond the revelation revealed by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit never reveals anything inconsistent with the nature of Christ or inconsistent with His Word. If somebody tells them the Spirit revealed it, I tell you what, the Spirit did reveal it, the Spirit from hell. Revealed that truth. Jesus said it is the deep things of Satan that they are teaching. Dawson McAllister made an interesting statement. He said it is fashionable today to search for truth, but when you preach it, you're a bigot. Folks, I'm going to tell you, it's time for churches to stand up and preach the truth and let all these yagyas that are running around all over the country, let them figure out what they're going to do, but some church somewhere has got to stand for truth without apology, and if they look at us and think we're strange, that's okay. We can be strange because we're right. When you stick by the words, you don't have to be cowardly about that. When you stay according to Scripture, when you stay true to a text, when you stay within the Word of God, you don't have to apologize for being right. But when you try to add a little truth and a little error and you mix that all together and try to teach that, then you've got to apologize for teaching that. And I don't believe you have to apologize for teaching the blood atonement of Jesus Christ or the inerrancy of Scripture. I don't think you should have to. There's the rationalization of sin. Now, not only was there the rationalization of sin, but there was a rebellion against authority. Jezebel noticed she was a self-proclaimed prophetess. A self-proclaimed prophetess. She rebelled against authority. She, undermined, she was undermining the leadership of the church, and she was teaching things against the will of the leadership of the church. She would not come under the authority of the church, and she had a desire to lead based probably on her personality and on her ability to lead. But folks, let me tell you, just because a person has an ability to lead in the world doesn't mean they have an ability to lead in the church. It is not education or ability or talent 
that brings leadership to a church. It is the filling and wisdom given by the Holy Spirit of God, and that doesn't come with a Ph.D., nor does it, is it absent because you only have a third-grade education. I have met some men who didn't even get out of grade school, who just old farmers who worked the ground, who knew God a lot better than some theologians that I know. You see, it's one thing to say you know a lot of great truths. It's another thing to know the person behind the truth. And the person behind the truth is Jesus Christ. And this woman, this teacher, was rebelling against authority. She was strong in her flesh, but she had no spirit. And false teachers have a funny way of doing things. They always prey on people who know less about the Word than they do. They prey on people who don't have a real knowledge of Scripture. And Jezebel is one of those kind of people for she would resist any teaching that said the Word of God was inerrant and infallible. Because I'm going to tell you, folks, let me tell you where that line of reasoning goes. If the Word of God is not inerrant and infallible, then what you say can take precedent over the Word of God. If the Word of God is inerrant and infallible, then what you say has to fall in line with the inerrant and infallible Word of God. It can't be your opinion and your idea and your theology. It's got to fit the book. And what happened with Jezebel was she said, well, I've had a new revelation. I don't need to be bound by this book anymore. All Scripture is given by God. It is inspired by God. It is the inerrant and fallible Word of God. And Jesus comes to her and says, Lady, it's about time that you walked the aisle and repented. And she refused to repent. Verse 21 indicates that there was no repentance when the error was pointed out. Now let me tell you the difference you can know between a Jezebel and somebody who's just chasing a rabbit and going off too far in the wrong direction. A Jezebel, if she is preaching her own doctrine and pumping herself up and building her own kingdom and stroking her own ego, his or her, that person will never submit to any correction from any other brother or sister in Christ. They will not come under the line of correction because they will be held accountable by no one. But if that person is really sincerely desiring to preach Jesus and to exalt Christ, if a brother or sister in Christ comes to them and shows where they are teaching error, they will examine their teachings and they will repent and come back in line with the truth of Scripture. Now, that's how you always know. If a person won't repent, if they refuse to be accountable, then you can take it to the bank. They're going to go off somewhere, and they're going to chase a rabbit and chase it till it goes home. But if a person is preaching Christ, they would repent and would want somebody to come to them if they in any way were teaching something inconsistent with the revealed nature of Christ. That's how you know where Jezebel is. And so Jesus comes to this woman who will not repent, and he says, I'm going to cast her on a bed of sickness. What he's saying is she made her bed, now she's going to lie in it. She taught immorality, she misled my people, she made her bed, now she will lie in it. She seduced my people, now I'm going to confine her to her own seduction. You know what the penalty for sin is? Sin. You know what the penalty for living an immoral, godless life sexually is? The punishment of what it does to your body. Sin is a punishment for sin. Somebody says, I want to be free to do whatever I want to do. And God says, okay, you can be free to do whatever you want to do, live however you want to live. And the punishment for that is the end result, the consequences of sin. God gives you more sin and more consequences, and you find yourself face to face with hell itself. 
Punishment for sin is sin. Jesus said, I'm going to cast her on a bed of sickness. Jezebel is still dangerous today. In the 80s and 90s mentality of do what you want, say what you want to say, believe whatever you want to believe, pluralism, theological adaptation to whatever you want to do, situational ethics, hodgepodge theology, and now humanism has come to the church and we have religious humanism. Let me tell you what religious humanism is. Religious humanism is saying that God needs us. It is saying that God exists for no other purpose except to serve your needs and your wants and your wishes and my needs and my wants and my wishes. It is to say that God exists in such a way that He has to have us, and if He doesn't have us, He has no reason to exist. Poor old God, we're doing Him a favor by asking Him to give us all these material things. That's religious humanism, folks, for it is feeding the flesh. It is making God subservient to us, not us servants to a sovereign God. Be careful if someone ever tells you that God exists to meet your needs. No, we exist to glorify God. That's why we're here. We are not here for God to meet our needs. Yes, God created us that we might have fellowship with Him, but the reason God created us and the reason God saved us is that the world might know redemption through Jesus Christ. We are not here to have our needs met. We are here to tell the world that they're going to hell and they need Christ and He's the only way. And religious humanism would deny that. It would say we're all just here just to ask God to meet our needs as if God is some kind of doctor writing prescriptions for whoever wants to come by and he's some kind of banker who gives out loans with no interest. Indiscriminate. God is not that way. Now there are several characteristics of Jezebel. First of all, she seduces Christians into compromise. She seduces Christians into compromise, into spiritual adultery. Any unfaithfulness to God is spiritual adultery, and she says that's okay to be unfaithful to God. And she teaches it as a new teaching. They are secular in their orientation. They'll try to bring the world into the church. Worldliness in the church. Worldliness is more an attitude than it is an action. Because what may be worldly to you may not be worldly to somebody else, but there is a worldly attitude in this world system that pervades and tries to invade the church of Jesus Christ. Also, she is sexually immoral. You're going to see more and more immorality in the church in America. You're going to see more and more, God led me to leave my husband and to marry this man. Now, folks, until you've had somebody sit in your office and tell you that, you can't believe people will say that. I can tell you right now, there's a man that's pulling in about $250 million a year on religious television. He's on his third wife. In fact, he and his second wife live next door to each other because he swapped wives with a pastor of a church in his community. And they, he got her wife and she got his wife, and they're all living right next door to each other, having a grand old time. Folks, you know what the Bible calls that? Sin. Still calls it sin. He even lets his wife teach because she has such great revelation from God. Folks, they haven't gone back and corrected what happened 12 to 14 years ago when God said it was sin. It was sin then, and it's still sin now. You see, sexual immorality. Get ready. Donahue this past week, Episcopal homosexual priest with his live-in lover. And get ready, folks. It's going to happen. 
And I'm going to tell you, you're going to have a harder and harder time in this country finding a church that will stay true to Scripture, especially in the area of sexual morals. And the only reason you've got some people staying true is because they're scared of disease, not because they're obeying the Word of God. And being scared of disease is not a reason to stay away from sex before marriage or sex outside of marriage or homosexual lifestyle. Staying away from it is because God said we're supposed to stay away from it. That's the only reason we need to do it. If disease is the only reason that somebody abstains, then what happens if you cure the disease? Does God change? No. God set up a standard. He set up a righteous standard. And the Jezebel crowd will teach sexual immorality. They will spiritually corrupt the church. Spiritually corrupt the church. You see, the church is supposed to be a thermostat. A church is supposed to change the climate of the community. A church is not supposed to be a thermometer to figure out what's going on with all the community around and then adapt itself so it's comfortable with the crowd. A church is supposed to set the climate. My friends, I'll tell you something. If this climate around this community is not changed because of Sherwood Baptist Church, we have no reason to exist. We exist to change the climate. We exist so a lost world and a godless world and people who follow after the teachings of this world, when they look around, they think, you know, what if Sherwood takes a stand on this? That's why we ought to be here, so we can influence the climate of our community. And we can change that climate through preaching the Word of God. And today you will find that most pulpits are silent of a prophetic word. There are not many prophets anymore. I'm not talking about prophets who can tell you that Jesus is going to come on September the 12th, 1988, which if he did, we're all in a heap of trouble. I'm talking about prophets who foretell, who tell the Word of God. I've always wondered how many invitations Joel and Amos and Jeremiah and Isaiah would get to do revivals in Southern Baptist churches. Probably not many. For the word of the prophet has been silenced and speaking the truth is bad for business these days. But thank God that there are still churches that want the truth and desire the truth and accept the truth when the truth is spoken. And folks, for that, we better pray for the sovereign protection of God that it always stays that way. Jezebel is a syndrome that is still with us. Just as in the Civil War, when more people died from disease and sickness than bullets, so more churches are dying today because of disease and sickness from the influence of satanic teachings than are dying from the outside external influences on the church. Jesus then comes and gives them a command, which I'm going to give you in about two minutes. And if you believe that, I have some swampland in Arizona to give you. They're found in verses 24 through 29. The key phrase is in verse 25 where he says, Hold fast until I come. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, In battle, disobedience of command leads to chaos and defeat. The call to follow Christ is not an invitation to a hospital for permanent treatment, a spiritual hypochondria, which moves from one symptom to another. It is a call to a battle where discipline and obedience are essential. He says, hold fast. Hold fast. It's a military term. It is a term that implies that somebody's trying to knock you off base and knock you off center. Somebody is trying to drive you back. He uses that term in Ephesians 6, Paul does. He talks about it in Philippians chapter 3 and chapter 4. Paul says, John says, hold fast, dig your heels in, hold fast until I come. 
The role that we have in America today as a church, in our culture, is for us to hold fast to the teachings of truth and to be faithful to what God has told us to do until He comes back. That's our role. That's what the church is supposed to do, to hold fast. It doesn't mean to, to sit in a corner and hope that the world will ignore us. It means that we stand in the midst of those who seek to drive us off balance and we stand firm and we dig our heels in and we say, I'm not going to be moved. Then he says, I will lay no other burden on you. Now that's an interesting little phrase for the word burden is the same word as what he talked about in verse 24 about the deep things of Satan. What Jesus said was, I'm not going to lay any more deep things on you. It is a reference to his all-sufficiency. It is a reference to the fact that the mysteries of God have been revealed in Jesus Christ for men to see that when men saw Jesus, they saw the Father. That when men saw Jesus, they saw the ultimate plan of redemption for the entire world in Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, you don't need all this stuff and you don't need all these things added to you. I'm not going to add any of that to you. I'm just going to tell you, hold fast. I'm coming and I'm not adding anything to you. Now, do you know Jesus like that? Do you know him in his simplicity? Some folks try to make it so hard to know God and it's so easy to know him. And yet... Once you get to know Him, you find out it takes you a lifetime to know Him. That's the complexity of the nature of God that somehow He tells us to hold fast, and I'm not going to lay all this deep stuff on you that if you're not so-and-so level intellectually or, or if you haven't been to this Bible school or this place, then somehow you feel like you're second-rate. Folks, there are no second-rate believers in the body of Christ. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And you can know him just as intimately as anybody who has all the learning from all the seminaries because you can know his heart. And to know his heart is to know him. Now why should you hold fast? And how do you do it? First of all, you do it by faithfulness to Jesus. And secondly, you do it by daily victory over sin. By faithfulness to Jesus and daily victory over sin. And then he tells you there will be two results for holding fast. One is, it's found in verses 26 and 27, he says that you will reign, that you will be given a God-given authority. A God-given authority. That there will be about your life an authority that people cannot explain. It will be a God-given authority. You will reign with Christ. That phrase has been abused by a lot of people in the Christian community. But it just simply means that where God says we have authority, we take it. When God says we go in power and with the fullness of the Spirit, we go. We obey Him. And when we're under His authority, we have authority. Then He says in verse 28 that you'll receive the morning star. Jesus is called in Revelation chapter 22. He says, I am the root and offspring of David, the bright morning star. Satan was identified as an angel of light. But friends, I'm going to tell you something. Long after the angel of light has been cast into the depths and darkness of hell. The bright and morning star is going to be the light to light your way. He is the light of this world, but He is also the light of heaven. He was the only light in the tabernacle. He will be the only light we'll need in heaven. What He's saying is, don't hook your hopes to a satellite. Hook them to the star. The all-sufficient Christ who is everything you want, who is everything you need, who is everything you'll ever hope for. Hook your hopes on the bright and morning star. Let's stand together with heads bowed and eyes closed.
Would you allow the bright and morning star this morning to come into your heart? The Lord Jesus Christ, would you allow Him to forgive you of your sins this morning, to cleanse you from your unrighteousness? You may have been watching a lot of people on TV or listening to a lot of tapes or reading a lot of books, and you're just as confused as you can be. This person says they've got truth. That person says they've got truth. This person says this. That person says that. You can be real confused if you don't watch it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No man comes to the Father but by me. You can know Jesus Christ today. You don't have to have a theological education. All you have to understand is that God loves you and He requires of you that you repent of your sins, that you change the direction of your life, and you come to Him. Maybe you've been visiting around a lot of churches and one church says this, another church says that. Folks, I'm going to tell you, if any church strays away from this book, it's not teaching you the truth. This book is the standard by which we measure our lives. Jesus Christ is the person by whom we measure our lives. And we try as a church to be the kind of church that is consistent with the Word of God. And if we are in error, we will change. We will not ask God's Word to change. If that's the kind of church you're looking for, for some stability for your family, for some security in knowing what you believe and why you believe it, then this is that kind of church. You ought to join it. You ought to come down. Maybe you live in this town and you've moved here, you've moved your business, you've moved your family, you've moved your boxes and all your family pictures and all your furniture, you've moved everything but your church letter. Maybe you've been visiting this church for a long time. Maybe you've been visiting it so long, people think you're a member. Don't you know you need to join this morning and affiliate with this local church and without apology stand with the people of God in this place and say, I want my life to count in this place for the kingdom of God. Maybe there needs to be some who come and pray. Regardless of your need, when the choir begins to sing, I would ask that you remain with heads bowed and eyes closed unless you are turning to somebody beside you and say, wouldn't you come with me? And let's go down together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the purity of the bride that you desire, and I pray that we would be that kind of bride, that you would protect this church, this body of believers, from ever falling prey to error and heresy. Bring now down these aisles those who you wish to unite with this body, for I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.